Hey, what's going on? Good afternoon. Welcome to the show. It's been a little while. I've been been uh, airing a lot of um, a lot of reruns uh, as I try to negotiate um, some sort of broadcasting schedule out here. It's not easy, you guys. You don't know. It's not easy to, between you know uh, family gatherings and, and children. Uh, and just the hot, hot, hot sun and Wi-Fi bandwidth issues and work that needs to be done. I'm working on two top-secret projects right now. They're both coming along uh, steady and wonderful. That's not how I wanted to word that. They're both coming out beautifully, slowly but surely. Um, you know what I find when you're creating, it's very important. Hmm, how do I best phrase something like this? It's very important when you are creating to allow the process to sort of happen, you know, like to, to not immediately expect results so quickly uh, the moment you start working on something because whatever the thing that you are creating's final form is going to be doesn't necessarily it doesn't come so quickly sometimes sometimes it, and the thing is you can have a vision you can see it in the in your mind's eye you can visualize the thing but you realize that it's not just going to you're not just going to flip a switch and it's going to be there you realize okay i need to take this step and then this step, and then this step. Oh, okay. Then I got to jump over this and jump onto this. But you know, as that process is going on, you can capture brief glimpses of the thing in some sort of form that you want it to be in, and it's great. It's a great motivator. So I feel really good in that kind of way. That's wonderful. Um, but you know me, I'm used to broadcasting as often as humanly possible, and it's just really hard. It's been even hard. You know, I've been doing the vlog on my phone. Uh, it's been hard to do that. I'm backlogged like four episodes with that. It's just been a lot of family time. It, it's so hot out here. I know that it's really hot in the States, but it's super hot here. Like the the sun, it, you know, it's been in the, it's like, you know what, like 95 every day, something like that. But the sun is so intense. I know I've said that a couple of times in the past, but it really is very brutal, uh, very intense, brutal sun. You really need to make sure you're hydrating. I mean, the sun will knock you on your ass if you're not careful. So, um, and, you know, I got this list, a running list of topics that uh i've been wanting to do you know i always keep i have a google doc that i keep with all the things every time i cross something on facebook i'm like ah oh, that would be good to talk about that that'll be good to talk about and um i've got a bunch of links to articles and i'm like i'm really like all right i'm gonna double down my efforts and make that happen and you know let's just launch right into it since we're here by the way keep your eyes peeled before we begin super quick housekeeping item keep your eyes peeled for my feature-length film, Romeo's Distress, uh, it's premiering on Saturday at 8 p.m. Uh, it is the censored version. I had to censor it for YouTube, unfortunately. Uh, I hate leaving it just sitting on a hard drive. My distribution plans have been sort of um, sidelined. And I figure, look, 
I'm trying to grow the YouTube channel. I'm trying to put as much stuff as I can out there. Why not put the feature? So I'm going to put the feature, at least until I decide, until it goes on a Blu-ray. Until it comes out in physical form, it'll be on YouTube. I mean, not only that, but I'm going to, I have the, the, the commentary track. I have the movie with the commentary track as well. That was meant for the, the Blu-ray, um, although I probably would have re-recorded it. So, all right, enough of that business. Guys, I love the Beatles. I love the Beatles as much as I love the Misfits, Sam Hain and Danzig stuff. I can talk about the Beatles endlessly. I may, and I, you know, I'm a little rusty. I'm a little rusty in the same way that when I started doing the Misfits show, I was a little rusty on some of that Misfits stuff too. And, you know, over the last year, I've really sort of, you know, remembered a lot of things that I had forgotten. Um, but that is not the case with the Beatles. I, I, I definitely, you know, probably read way more than I retained and remembered. And, um, so we'll see how, we'll see how this goes. Uh, but I've been wanting to talk about something Beatles specific for a while on this channel, because like I said, I, I, I am just so enamored by the Beatles, you know, um, there, there's a lot of, there's like, sort of like this, like, you know, like there's modern um, or contemporary or I guess maybe it's always been there. You always have like a lot of uh, sort of passive aggressive, you know, eye rolling um, sort of uh, reception towards the Beatles. I'll never forget. There was a guy in a band and he was like, the Beatles suck. And I was like, dude, you're a good songwriter. You're a pretty good songwriter. Why on earth? How could you hate like you know, how could you hate on some of the greatest songwriters of all time? Because what do the Beatles do better than anything else, better than playing instruments? You know, like what is the thing that makes the Beatles so great? There's like a lot of things that make the Beatles so great. But what is like that one, if you have to boil it down to the one thing that makes the Beatles just the GOAT, the greatest of all time, to put them in Olympians at what they do, songs. It's the songs. They are songwriters. They are songwriters more than they are singers. They are songwriters more than they are guitar players. They are songwriters more than they are recording artists, meaning like the, the art of recording music. Everything they did that they did incredibly well was all secondary to the fact that these guys could write songs. Why could they write songs? They could write songs because they had incredible chemistry. You know, that's the such an important thing. If you're in a band, if you're not like a solo guy, because there are people that are solo, look at, uh, you know, a guy who I always talk about, Jay Retard, you know, he wrote countless songs by himself, 250 songs by himself. You know what I'm saying? Um, that's not to say that Paul McCartney and John Lennon both didn't write an incredible amount of songs by themselves either, because they most certainly did in the Beatles and outside of the Beatles, but they started their, their whole process, their entirety of their success can be sort of traced back to this, this partnership, the Lennon and McCartney partnership of songwriting, which comes in the form, which comes from their chemistry. And then adding on, adding into that, that echelon, I don't know if echelon is the right kind of word. I really just wanted to use it. it just rolls off the tongue of the echelon assuming I'm pronouncing it correctly, adding into that echelon, you have George Harrison, who is like, you know, now he's in the thing. And, you know, there are a lot of people that, you know, it's a kind of a, a tragedy in a way, 
because George Harrison deserves a lot more credit on Len Lennon and McCartney songs than he gets. You know, he definitely contributed some songwriting in some way, shape, or form. But he was outside of the partnership, that core partnership, the core of all the of all Beatledom comes down to the Lennon and McCartney partnership, right? So so right outside of that core is George Harrison. And then right outside of that core, holding down the beat, being the glue between the relationships, and most of all, being the best drummer for the band like the Beatles, you have Ringo Starr. Now, what makes Ringo Starr such a fantastic drummer more than anything else? What makes him, you know, um, what makes, what gives him that special oomph for the Beatles as well as just being a drummer period because he doesn't really do drum fills. He's not like a fast drummer. I don't know what you, you know, I guess when you think of a drummer, like what's the number one quality you want a drummer? You want a drummer that can stay in the pocket, right? Who can hold time. They say a band is as good as its drummer. And as far as it comes to holding time, Ringo Starr was a human metronome. Not only that, Ringo Starr has no ego. I mean, of course he has ego. He's a fucking rock star. Everybody, you know, obviously has an ego. But what I mean by that, he he doesn't have this ego within the Beatles. He is simply there to sort of be in service to the song. Every Beatles song, you'll never hear Ringo Starr's drums like overtake anything else. He's not doing going he's not keith mooning it now keith moon had his place you know i once heard it said in a documentary about the who that like each member of the who there are four of them they're all like lead like you know like roger daltrey's the lead vocalist and john the ox he's he's the lead friggin bass player even though there is no such thing as a lead bass but he is like in terms of what he does on the bass and friggin pete townsend is both the lead and the rhythm guitar player, but he's like a lead guitar player. And same can be said for Keith Moon. That they're like four superstars like that came together. We are the who, uh. But Ringo, Ringo's not a Keith Moon drummer, man. Ringo is a super duper, like sort of relaxed guy who is completely in service of the song. That's how you bottom line what the brilliance of Ringo Ringo is not out there to do. He's not trying to shove as many fills as he can, or he doesn't need his drum solo. You know, he doesn't need to do like a, a drum solo in the middle of the concert. As a matter of fact, Ringo Starr only performed one drum solo during the entire recording career of the Beatles. And it was for the very last Beatles song called the end. That's the only time Ringo does a drum solo. And he was pushed to do that drum solo. He didn't want to do it. And the boys were like, look, we're each doing 12 bars, lead guitar. That guitar solo, that's the three Beatles together. They're each doing a lead. And then Ringo uh, was pushed to do a drum solo. So Ringo doesn't do these sort of things. He is all about servicing the song. What does the song need? You know, my favorite example to go to is And I Love Her, where it's literally two blocks coming together and I'm going to try and hum it for you. I'm not going to do, 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 like, that's it. Like just these, these, these blocks, these not cinder blocks, um, wood blocks 
that's all he's doing. And it's like, boom, that's all the song needs. You know, that's the best kind of drummer for a songwriter. So that's what Ringo is. He is a songwriter's drummer. He's the type of drummer who's like, okay, the song needs this. I'm playing for the song. It doesn't matter. I'm just completely in service. I'm a cog in the machine. And contributing something like that, and that takes an incredible amount of strength. You know, you might look at Ringo and go, oh, because Ringo's a pushover, oh, this or oh, that. That takes a hell of a lot of strength to be able to do something like that, to be able to just go, I'm just going to sit back here in my kids and just do whatever is asked of me. Blah, blah, blah. You know, it takes an incredible amount of restraint. And so that's what made Ringo great. So that's like, you know, there's your solar system. And then outside of that echelon, <laughs> using the echelon again, outside of that, you have George Martin, producer, produced all the Beatles albums. And really, you know, in some ways, the fifth Beatle, you know, there's a lot of fifth Beatles. He's one of them. Um, and basically, you have this, 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 the reason why I want to use the solar system sort of analogy is because you have, you have all this stuff that's in like synchronous harmony and in some way, shape or form that makes the Beatles work because the Beatles, the idea of Beatles, Beatles is bigger than the four lads from Liverpool. It's like this bigger thing, right? Well, in a very short period of time, that all came apart as, as almost as quickly as it came together. What I mean by that is when you look at the Beatles' career, the Beatles were really only around for about 10 years, right? The beginnings of the Beatles started in the late, late, late 50s, like 58, 59. The John, uh, John and Paul met in 57 um, when they were still called the, uh, God, what, um, uh, the Quarrymen. Went from being the Quarrymen to the Silver Beatles or, you know, Long John Silver and the Silver Beatles, a bunch of stuff like that, to just the Beatles. But the Beatles don't become the four Beatles until Ringo Starr comes. That's not until August of 1962, right? So, because the Beatles were only around for about 10 years, 1960 to 1970, right? So, already you're knocking off two years because Ringo's not even there yet, right? They're, they're cutting their teeth with Pete Best in, in, uh, in Germany. Then, take that further, it's not until February of 1964 that Beatlemania hits and Hard Day's Night becomes the biggest thing in the world and the Beatles become the biggest thing in the world. So that's now six years, right? You know what I mean? So it's like this very, and then the, the, the real, you know, the, the, the hurricane that was the Beatles, Beatlemania, really goes from 64 to 66. And then 66 is really when things start to slowly degrade. and all of that degrading kind of call it started in 66. The big nail in the coffin was 67 when they lost their longtime manager, Brian Epstein, who's also considered to be a fifth beetle. A, he was, uh, uh, he was in the closet, gay man, uh, Jewish businessman, uh, from Liverpool ran a department store, 
kind of a shrewd businessman, uh, kind of screwed the Beatles in some aspects, but also the Beatles would not be the Beatles without Brian Epstein. He, he like, I mean, he made the Beatles in, in many ways. He's a huge factor in why the Beatles were the Beatles. You know, people love to pour over the story in the same way that we love to pour over the misfits. People love to pour over this story because it's absolutely fascinating. It's it's the it's the American dream. It's becoming world famous. It's becoming super rich. Um, it's being super duper creative in a very short period of time. That's another thing I want to say. The Beatles are a band that literally like everything that they did, they did in an incredibly short period of time. We were talking about those, those chrono dates and sort of jumping all over the place here. You know, the, um, from really from 63 to 70 is they, they released 12 LPs. Their entire recorded discography happens in seven years. Okay. Yet when we look at a picture of, of the Beatles in 1964, and then we look at a picture of them in 1968, we go, holy crap. It's like 40 years difference between these two bands. And no, it's like 40 years. Like it's kind of crazy when you really think about it. So 66, they stopped touring. That's like the first sort of blow. Then Brian Epstein dies tragically of a drug overdose, there be, uh, which creates a power vacuum in the band not it's not true it's not really a power vacuum it um brian epstein sort of kept everything moving and when he was gone it was like you know how they say like like knee joints like when the cartilage erodes and it's just bone on bone and it creates irritation i feel like brian epstein was the cartilage and when he was removed it created bone on bone irritation until the, the whole kneecap shattered right um and Basically, things really started to fly apart in the year 1969. And document, and you know, the thing about being Beatles, and we're going to wrap up this intro in just a minute because I probably could endlessly talk about this. The thing about being the Beatles is you get to a place, you're kind of like what, what, what Kevin Smith experienced with Prince when he was making a documentary that never saw the light of the day. Prince was very famous for shelving. He'd fund these extravagant projects and then just shelve them just as quickly. And Kevin Smith had the most interesting observation about a guy like Prince. And I feel like it definitely applies to the Beatles at that stage of their career where Prince didn't like to be told no. I'm not saying the Beatles didn't like to be told no. It's just the idea that like, it's this idea that like you literally made like the impossible happen by becoming this thing, your prince. You basically made yourself into prince. So like nothing is nothing is impossible in your eyes. You have endless resources and endless time. So if you want to take a shit and fucking have a recording set up in the shitter while you're taking a dump, you can do that. And Prince had a recording studio in his bathroom or something of the sort where he could like lay down a tasty jam while he was pinching a loaf. You know what I mean? Cause he's Prince. Cause like, that's how, Pr and you know, it's not like, it's not like an to Prince. It's not like he's, you know, he doesn't, it's not like an inconvenience. He's just like, no, I just need to do this. And you know, what if I get an idea in the bathroom? I should just be able to do this. Why? Because I'm Prince because I made the impossible happen. 
you know what I mean? In becoming this world famous juggernaut. And I feel like it's the same with the Beatles. The Beatles get to a place where, you know, it used to cause, you know, for anybody who's coming into Abbey Road to record, it costs a lot of money. You know, the Beatles were just like, it's like they just ate, they ate billable hours. Like, like it was, like it was potato chips, you know, they just go in and be like, oh yeah, we'll work on this song for seven, for seven days. Who cares? You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, nothing was ever, uh, uh, there was no obstacle in their way of what they wanted to do. Paul McCartney, right after Brian Epstein dies, Paul McCartney goes, hey, you know what? Let's make a movie. I've never made a movie myself. We've 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 been a part of two movies. We were part of Help, and we were part of Hard Day's Night. But let's make our own movie, Magical Mystery Tour, and it was a disaster. But like they just in in such a short period of time, because at that point they had achieved they had achieved really they had reached heights that nobody had seen, godly heights with Sergeant Pepper. I mean, Sergeant Pepper brought them to the zenith of everything. You know, uh, of of the, the the front line, the the cutting edge, down to the tip of the molecule of pop culture. You know what I mean? In every single aspect, from photographs to films to 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 records to fashion. You know, writing books. John Lennon wrote two books. I mean, like everything. So of course, when Paul McCartney is just like. Hey, let's do a film. We'll call it Magical Mystery Tour. This whole thing with Brian, it's a real drag. Let's just jump on a couch and travel through the, the hillside. It'll be a real great film. And then, like, get it broadcasted on TV, like, two months later, just because he's the beat, because they're the Beatles, man. So it, it's 1969, January. Um, they have just, they are a month past, or they are a month out or no sorry they're uh, uh I'm trying to say this is a fancy way of saying about a month prior they had released the white album so the beatles put out a double album one of the first of its kind i believe frank zappa is one of the only people that predate the beatles with the double album concept george harrison would be the first person ever put out a triple album which is all things must pass but that wouldn't come until another year later the Beatles have just put out a double album of songs. It's like 34 songs. So as, as Paul McCartney says, it's a fucking white album. You know, like, it, like, and really, it's my favorite Beatles album, by the way. You just put out this white album. Already, they're back in the friggin' studio. They don't know what to do at this point. They are directionless. You know, they do Sgt. Pepper. It explodes. They followed up with Magical Mystery Tour. I mean, really, Sgt. Pepper is like, it's like the pyramid. It's like the tip of the pyramid. They... They touched Nirvana, you know, and then it's like, how can you, they couldn't, they couldn't go higher. They tried to go higher and they couldn't go higher. And the stuff that came out was, is friggin' revolutionary, but none of it, maybe that's not true though. Cause you look at a track like happiness is a warm gun and then compare happiness is a warm gun to anything on Sergeant Pepper. And I would just, you know, I would, I would, throw down happiness as a warm gun with anything on Sgt. Pepper is what I'm trying to say. They're already back in the studio. They've, but this time they've got this guy, Michael Lindsay Hogg, who by the way, is the illegitimate son of Orson Welles, British guy, uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg uh, and a documentary crew to film them doing rehearsals. This is such a long thing. I like, I, I really didn't, I really want to get to the interview. Um, they're filming rehearsals for what 
Paul is thinking we need to get back to what we were. We need to get back to the clubs in Hamburg where we were cutting our teeth and calling it the get back project, which would eventually become let it be after Phil Spector had his way with it. Phil Spector, the Uber producer, did be my baby with the Ronettes and yada, 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 um, who the boys were big fans of, um, had his famous recording technique, the wall of sound, which was just layering and layering and layering sound until it felt like a wall coming at you. Um, they, that, that would be the, the, the end of Let It Be. But at the beginning, it was going to be Get Back. And it was, the Beatles were going to start performing live again. And they were trying to do a – they wanted to do a concert. There were a bunch of different ideas. I'm not going to get into all of them now. They had, a, they had a bunch of different ideas. But they were like, of course, let's have a documentary, a fully funded documentary film crew with a bunch of cameras rolling at all times as we try to write these songs. And they had songs for days. When the Beatles went to India, they were recording and recording and recording and recording, um, stockpiling all sorts of stuff. I mean, just the stuff that George had alone. I mean, he ended up putting out, like I said, a triple album in 1970, All Things Was Best. All of those songs were being um, sort of workshopped uh, in uh, the studio they were in, which was Twick Twickenham Studio, I believe. They left Abbey Road, and they were not working with – they were not working with um, George Martin. They had had a falling out with George Martin over the White Album. Uh, who produced the White Album? I guess technically it was technically it was maybe still George Martin, but I think he left in the middle of the session, if I recall. And then Jeffrey Emmerich, who was an engineer, kind of sort of took over a little bit, but not really. Um, in any case, it was not. Uh, uh, George Martin is out of the picture now and they're just it's literally they spent about a week it was about two weeks two weeks of January and I have listened to so many podcast episodes about each day of these two weeks because the Beatles life in this decade was so heavily documented between interviews between uh, photo sessions between concerts TV appearances movies um, uh, the, the, the logs for all the recording sessions, as I said, appointment books that Brian Epstein, I mean, you literally can figure out what the Beatles were doing on any given day within the decade of the 60s. It's like insane. And so the logs and, you know, and, and the thing was all this stuff leaked. I mean, we've, we've had bootlegs of the let it be sessions, not all of it, but a lot of it. And there are, I mean, there's, there's hours and hours and hours of audio and there's about 67 hours of uh, film that was shot over those two weeks that that period of time culminated with John Lennon getting into a fight with George Harrison over words that were said to Yoko Ono John punched George in the face George quit the band and you know they had all slowly quit the band one by one the first person to quit the band was Ringo during the White Album sessions and Paul is the guy who's drumming on back to the USSR and Dear Prudence, although it's actually a composite. Supposedly Ringo did lay down some tracks there as well. If you listen to isolated tracks, you can hear there's no way Paul could have done that stuff. Paul, surprisingly, even though Paul, people consider that Paul uh, to be a um, incredible drummer, uh, there were things that Paul could not do that Ringo could do on the drums. I agree, Siegel. George was the bomb. 
So George left, and he had been the third to leave because the next person to leave – sorry, he'd been the second to leave. I'm screwing this all up. He was the second to leave uh, after Ringo came back, then George left during this time I'm speaking of. And then after that, after Abbey Road in September of 1969, John leaves the band. And then finally, in May of 1970, Paul announces to the world that the Beatles have broken up. He leaves the band. When he leaves the band, the band is truly broken up. So they all each took a turn leaving the band at one time or another. During these tense sessions uh, at this studio that would that was the Get Back project that would eventually turn into Let It Be, it was George who left the band. And, you know, uh, John Lennon at this time, oh, my God, there's so much to talk about. There's so much that was happening at this time. Jack, John Lennon's, like, you know, experimenting with heroin and... Yoko's had some miscarriages and uh, John suggests one day at lunch to uh, replace George Harrison with Eric Clapton, just as like a jab, you know, not being, not being serious. Siegel says George and Ringo equals blast from the past. What do you mean by that Siegel? I'm not sure. Um, what else is, and you know, and Paul's trying to keep everybody together. I mean, tensions are an all-time high for a bunch of different factors. Again, I'm not going to get into them, but I'd love to do a video about, like, five reasons why the Beatles broke up. But in any case, cameras and audio are picking up all this stuff, this turmoil that's going on, um, you know, because it's just fly on the wall. It's a fly on the wall type situation. You know what I mean? And um, they're just sort of like – they're just sort of – out of their element they're they're floating in the ether uh there are so many tracks that that were either recorded on these these nagra that they're called nagra reels which are you know which is how you recorded sound back then reel to reel tape um they were either recorded on the nagras or they were recorded in the actual studio you know they were supposed to be building uh, a studio at apple they had this guy magic alex who was this crazy nut who was supposed to be building them like with at the time unheard of 24 track recording or something like that. Maybe it was 48 tracks recording some ridiculous amount of tracks. The Beatles really only worked with four tracks for the majority of their career. They didn't work with eight tracks until the white album. And I don't quote me on this. I think Abbey road was done with 16 tracks. Probably not. It was probably done with eight tracks as well, but it, believe it or not, believe it or not, freaking. um, Friggin' Sergeant Pepper was recorded with four tracks. Could you imagine that? What's going on, Cameron? How you doing? How you doing, Cameron Flodge? We're talking about the Beatles. So in any case, they're they're like they're trying to do this documentary. It's not working out. It, all their grandiose plans, typical Beatles grandiose plans. This is the first time the Beatles truly cannot pull off what they had envisioned. And get back slowly morphs into the Let It Be documentary. And it's always been a sour note for the Beatles themselves. You know what I mean? Um, Cameron asks, is that the band that I that did I get around? No, that is the Beach Boys. That is the Beach Boys. That's also a great song as well. Um oh man, I could I I disagree, Siegel. The Beatles. We're not sloppy. The Siegel says the Beatles were sloppy in some regards. 
I, I would have, I mean, yeah, in like from like maybe from like 1960 to 1961. Are you talking about playing or are you talking about, um, I don't know, I don't know in what regard, if you're talking about in business, yes, I would say yes, that would be the, the case for sure. I can't see the chat. Uh, Cameron's just trolling now. He says they did satisfaction, right? Yeah. Yes, they did. They did Satisfaction and they also did Mr. Blue Sky. That's what the Beatles, those are songs that the Beatles wrote. They also did, um, what's that song? Uh, She's a Rainbow on Sgt. Pepper. Yes. Okay. Siegel, I do agree. Near the final years, when it came to business matters, they did get incredibly sloppy. Uh, so, in any case, there's a brand new interview with Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson, now to get to Peter Jackson. Peter Jackson, one of my favorite filmmakers of all time, who in his own right is kind of like, I, I don't know if he's like a Beatles of film per se, but in the same way that the Beatles, and another thing that we need to say real quick when comparing Peter Jackson to the Beatles, that's what I'm about to do. Peter Jackson has mastered the craft of cinema in so many different ways. He has pioneered techniques that, you know, are now a part of like the cutting edge, you know, and, and it, all of it came through a, a need and necessity uh, for the, for his creativity. Same thing with the Beatles. The Beatles basically kind of invented modern, a lot of modern audio recording in, in a studio can be, you know, attributed to the things that the Beatles figured out. They were truly pioneers, man. They were, they were pioneers. That's right, cinema. Mark Ortiz says, all hail Peter Jackson. That is correct. I agree fully. Here's a dude that started out in the micro-budget world with bad taste. He was making B-grade New Zealand splatter films and freaking like, you know, before, you know, in the next 12 years, like, was sweeping the Oscars. He's winning 14 Oscars for Lord of the Rings, like a, like a decade and some change later. Incredible, an incredible, incredible man, a, an outlier. You know what they call an outlier? Somebody who does something for 10,000 hours and becomes a master. The Beatles were outliers. The Beatles spent 10,000 hours in those, in those Hamburg clubs, just playing, playing, playing with each other, getting that chemistry together and becoming masters. They were also masters in the recording studio when they, you know, either by accident or through necessity, by accident in the realm of John leaves his guitar in front of a speaker and accidentally invents feedback. And what I mean by accidentally invents, it's not that he invented it, but he was like, that's really neat. Let's put it on the record. So for the beginning of I Feel Fine, it starts with some feedback. That was John Lennon's suggestion, and it never had been recorded before. Now it's like, it, you know, there people do whole tracks of feedback. Look at the Misfits for, you know, uh, London Dungeon or Halloween or all of Earth AD. They did an entire track just of feedback. Well, that all comes from the Beatles, man. That all comes from the Beatles. John Lennon being lazy is like doesn't want to uh, uh, track, do a double track of his voice. Like, you know, you do you do layers of your of, of any, you know, musical sound that you're doing to thicken it, to make it thicker and you know, uh, bigger, you know, and, and as we said, Phil Spector took that to the extreme too. And John Lennon turns to Jeffrey Emmerich and is like, 
can you just copy my vocal and then like delay it slightly so it sounds like there's two of me and jeffrey emmerich's like yeah sure you know like all these different techniques freaking using a bass amp as a microphone because when you reverse the polarity of the magnetism or something i'm don't i'm probably getting that wrong when you reverse that stuff you turn a any speaker can become a microphone and any microphone can become a speaker friggin crazy all right hold on let's go to the comments real quick um cameron says in all serious note though what do you think of people who compare bands like early beach boys and beatles to boy bands like nsync and beach boys and backstreet boys i mean i think i don't think anything i think it's accurate that's what the beatles were they were but here's the thing now imagine nsync or the backstreet boys becoming nirvana in three years that's what the beatles did literally the Beatles went from being NSYNC to Nirvana in three years. Like it's, it's mind blowing when you think about the evolution of their sound, you know what I'm saying? Like that's crazy. That is crazy. Um, yeah. So yeah, it is off topic. We're going to, we're going to get to the let it be interview in, in just a minute. Um, I'm just trying to get to these comments. Tony, what's up, Tony? How you doing? Tony says, Jeff Emmerich, the true studio wizard that invented a lot of Beatles recording techniques. Yes, man. Um, and Tony, I don't know if you've read it, but if you haven't, you should check it out. For everybody out there, please read Jeffrey Emmerich's book, Here, There, and Everywhere. It's technically, there's a lot of um, uh, factual inaccurate. There are a lot of inaccuracies. There's like a lot of things that are not right, but it's a phenomenal read. And I wish if like, if I could adapt a book into a film, it would be that because it just would be so awesome to to hear um i would disagree siegel says lennon has the strongest voice i don't know man i would say that paul easily gives him a run for his money and all you have to do is look no further than a song like i'm down which is a b-side during the uh during 1965 in the help era uh which is really really great um and yes as tony says here it is a must it's just totally a must read so in any case Peter Jackson, right? He just to just to just to sort of like tie these two things together, and because they they do intersect. Peter Jackson starts off making like micro budget horror films. Th- then he does Meet the Feebles, one of my favorite films of all time. Then Dead Alive, which is another one of my favorite films of all time. And then he starts to you know go more and does Forgotten Silver. He does uh, Heavenly Creatures, which is great. Uh, and then he is given the keys to the kingdom he has a a major studio deal and he is asked if he wants to do king kong and or he lands the king kong gig this is 1995 1996 and peter jackson became a filmmaker because of king kong this is like his 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 kindred film a lot of people think he fucked up that king kong movie i think it's a, a friggin masterpiece i love it um and Peter Jackson's like, hell yeah, I want to do King Kong. So he starts about the pre-production process some sometime in early 1996. He's starting to figure out how am I going to do King Kong, you know, machines, blah, 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 blah. And they realize what's going on. Good, good afternoon, Cryptomeria. We're talking about the Beatles. Yes, evolution is revolution. This is true. Um. And he's just like, he's like, he's realizing like, man, like the way that I want to do 
King Kong. I want to do it with computer stuff. And I just can't. You can't bring an ape to life with computers yet in the way that we would want to. Something along those lines. And so Peter Jackson um, regretfully passed on the project or the project got delayed or shelved. Something happened with the project and they were no longer going to do it. Yes, I agree. A great stream indeed. So they were no longer going to do King Kong. Up the Pike is this film that started off as a Tales from the Crypt film. It was going to be directed by Robertson Meckes, who was, you know, one of the uh, guys behind uh, Tales from the Crypt, the brilliant, one of my favorite TV shows from from the late 80s, early 90s, along with a, a bunch of other guys. Uh, and, and Zemeckis had, you know, done Death Becomes Her and Roger Rabbit and uh, Back to the Future films. Like, you know, uh, sort of like uh, an adjunct Spielberg in his own right. He was going to direct a film called The Frighteners. And it, it evolved from being a Tales from the Crypt film, much like From Dust Till Dawn had, into its own, this own sort of thing. And Peter Jackson gets involved first, uh, him and his partner, Fran Walsh, who he's married to. First, it was first it was going to be. um First, it was going to be. Hold on, I'm trying to remember this, guys. I'm trying to. This is all off the top of the dome. He was just. They were just writing it and producing it. And when Zumekis saw what they were up to, like what that, like what they were cooking up, he sort of actually. He was like, you know what? I'm going to produce this. I'm going to step aside. I'm going to let you do your thing. And so they did that. P Peter Jackson directs it. But here's the thing: the effects that they want to do, like they want to do this stuff with ghosts that have just never been done with computers. And this time around, Peter Jackson is just like freaking, Hey, let's like, let's, let's do it. Let's, let's start our own company. They started this thing up called Weta. Right. And they started up Weta and um, they, they basically figure out. And again, I, you know, I wrote an article about this. It's on my website and I don't remember all the details. But basically, they created some of the technology and they had to scan film in a way that they had never done before. And they had pioneered like these, this compute, the CGI animation that had never been done before, uh, you know, blending it with live action film. And, it, and you know, what's funny, it was basically like the next step. It's the next step after what Zumekis had done six or seven years prior with who framed Roger rabbit, which was like animating on top of, you know, like the live action plates, a plate shot is your shot that you're going to animate on top of like the, the thing that anchors your thing. So now what they're doing is they're sort of optically printing using computers. They're optically printing the animation with the and I mean, listen, they've been doing this stuff since 1980. It's not, it was not, it's not like it was brand new, but they had just, they had taken it to the next level and they had had to design computers and computer programs at Weta in order to do this. And that stuff was the basis that would allow them to do what they did with Lord of the Rings. So from there, then they get the keys to the kingdom with Lord of the Rings. And before you know it, this dude has won every Oscar there is to win. I mean, just like literally. You know, the Lord of the Rings trilogy is the Star Wars trilogy for that generation at that time. You know, from what? From like 2000 to 2004 or 2003. That was like, every, it was like so huge. It was so big. And then finally, after that, 
He finally gets to do his King Kong. And now he's got that computer technology at a place where he can really just, oh, and I love that Kong so much. I love it, love it, love it, love it. It's great. He finally gets to his, he finally gets to the, the, the Kong to his place where, or finally gets to the place where he can do his Kong. That's what I'm trying to say. But Jackson doesn't stop there. He just keeps going and going and going. What do I mean by that? For instance, and this is the last thing I'm going to say because it's relevant to the interview and he's going to talk about it probably. He made a documentary called They Shall Not Grow Old. He came into, he came into possession of hours and hours and hours of silent film from World War I. This is 100 years after World War I. These people are all dead. And basically, using archival audio and video interviews, he put together this film that tells the story of World War I from the people who experienced it. Nobody in this film who did not fight in World War I was in this was interviewed. Meaning, like, if you were not a part of World War I, you're not in this movie. Not only did he do that, but he was also, they were foleying, like, they were overdubbing, they were able, using lip reading techniques, they were able to find out what people were saying in silent film roles, meaning things that were language, like dialogue that was lost to time. They were able to reconstruct what these people had said and then hired voiceover actors to re-record what was being said and then sync it up with the silent film giving lost souls a voice and you know i took my dad my dad and i went to go see this film at the alamo and it was it was unbelievable and not only that he had to scan it in and do all this stuff and like clean it up and do like all this film stuff there's actually a great there was a great featurette about how he did all that stuff and you know and they added a sound design not a soundtrack a sound design meaning you know they added like ambience and just everything to really sort of immerse you to really make you think that you were there during world war one it's a phenomenal document they shall not grow old check it out phenomenal documentary well he's taken that process now and he, not only has he scanned all his old films he's going to put out a box set and i can't wait for that goddamn box set i'll tell you what but he is now i don't know who well, we're going to find out right now in the interview he either was approached or someone he approached someone or someone approached him about taking on all of the hours and hours and hours of Beatles footage and making a new documentary about that period in time, which by many had considered to be a really negative time, especially by the Beatles, which is why they've always kept the let it be documentary from ever being re-released properly. They've like always sort of shelved it. And from my understanding now, now that they've seen this re and you know that now all of a sudden like history is changing. Everybody's going, Oh man, it wasn't as bad as we think. And I think that's kind of like they're, they're, they're just sort of like, uh, I don't know, not whitewashing. What's the word? They they're positive washing They're They're, they're sort of washing over their, the bad parts of their history. Kind of like shame on you guys for doing that. If they don't talk about the negative stuff in this docuseries, then there will be a but it'll be nothing but a fluff piece. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think it's going to be absolutely incredible. 
Um, but, you know, Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr tend to sort of fluff over negative moments because they, you know, they're thinking about their legacy. And I don't blame them. I get it. I understand why they would do that. But much like other bands that we love to analyze, it be- sort of turns into like rewriting history. And so that's why that other Let It Be film is very important. But what's interesting and what Peter Jackson has said recently and may say in this interview we're about to read is that, you know, the, the, the Let It Be film carries a very, captures a very narrow, I mean, again, it was a directionless project where they just sort of were like, well, we need, something needs to come out of this, but it's not, not, there's no, there's not enough consideration towards everything that's there. And I feel like we needed 50 years to go by before we could really revisit this stuff in a different context and understand what the Beatles were at that period in time. So without further ado, let's take a look. Let's look at the comments first real quick. I'm not going to dwell on them. We got John Voice of Doom in the house. He loved the 1976 Kong by Dino De Laurentiis, where they actually built a $1 million King Kong. And, you know, if you want to hear more about that, check out the William Stout episode on Pizza Punk on my channel, where he talks about that as well, I believe. Cameron says, didn't Zumacus, sorry if I spelled it wrong, make a film called I Want to Hold Your Hand about kids in 1964 trying to get tickets for a Beatles concert? Yes. Before Detroit Rock City, there was I Want to Hold Your Hand, which was a film very much in the same vein, and I think I would make that a double feature. And it came out in 77. It was one of Zumeckis' first films. Um, and the Beatles are not really, it's, it's more about fans of the Beatles than it's about the Beatles are in the, the background. You know what I mean? They're not really, it's not really about the Beatles per se. Um, I think you're referring to the Frighteners and... Yes, it's a master. I love the Frighteners. It's a masterpiece. It's so great. The best part of the Frighteners is Jeffrey Combs, in my opinion. He's just, I love, I love Michael J. Fox. And it really does, you feel the Zoom, the Zumeckis DNA. It does feel like a back to the future film in terms of its pacing and exciting energy. Um, but it also has that Peter Jackson flavor too. It's also shot in New Zealand and features the cemetery where they, you know, I kick ass for the Lord in um, in Dead Alive as well. So there's that. Um, <laughs> Kong equals the Beatles. I like that. Um, it was a lot of little films that pushed ahead technology for blockbusters. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. I, I love that. Siegel is a huge Beatles fan. Um, NJ Fiend says... Peter Jackson did an amazing job with that World War I documentary. Totally different subject matter, but I'm sure it is in, it's in good hands. Yeah, man. I After seeing that, I, was, I have such faith in Peter Jackson and what he's going to do. Again, he may or may not be hindered by the Beatles and the Beatles getting final say. Who knows, who knows, what, who knows what will be? We'll see. So without any further ado, this is from GQ. This just came out the other day uh, i'm going to try and read it through my screen because my my computer situation is a little bonkers here and it's a gq article called you've never seen the beatles like this before peter jackson on his epic get back docuseries because 
originally was supposed to be a film, a single documentary film, and now it is a three-part or maybe it's a six-part docu-series that's going to be premiering on Disney+, Plus, which really has me over the moon because oh, I just want more and more and more and more. Um, and it's by Dylan Jones. This is from uh, this three days ago, uh, July 12th on 2021. Um, it doesn't matter how much you turn off your mind, relax and float downstream. That's uh, a quote from the lyrics for tomorrow never knows by written by John Lennon for rubber soul in 1966, uh, because there's nothing that's going to prepare you for the Beatles get back Peter Jackson's colossal, let it be reboot for any self-respecting Beatles nut. This must surely come as one of the final mop top holy grails right up there with an official release of the last important unreleased studio track Carnival of Light and the preliminary work the band did on a proposed film version of Joe Orton's up against it. So, you know, that's the amazing thing about like being interested in a subject just when you think you know everything there is to know you learn something fucking new i had no idea that there was some that they were working on a film called up against it it must have been one of those that you know they they the beatles third film was supposed to be many different things including lord of the rings directed by stanley kubrick yes that's a true story that is a true fucking story for another time um but i didn't know about this joe orton's up against it I do, however, know about Carnival of Light. This is an infamous lost track that we've all wanted to hear. It's not so much a song as it is a sound collage. It's 18 minutes long. It's made by McCartney, and it was scrapped from Sgt. Pepper. Uh, very few people have heard Carnival of Light. Mark Lewinson, the guy who write, wrote uh, Tune In, uh, probably the, the biggest and bestest Beatles book out there yet, which I have not read yet, but it supposedly is, uh, has listened to a carnival of light. Ever since the project was officially announced um, at the start of 2019, expectations have been feverish, though anxieties were assaged when Jackson released a six-minute teaser last December in which we saw John, Paul, George, and Ringo mucking about in the studio, laughing and japing and generally acting like friends, mates, people who still liked each other enormously. And I'm sure they did, but like, let's not mince words here. They were also like in, in like, they were, there was a civil war going on. I don't know if that's going to be brought up. There was a civil war uh, for management. The three of them, John, George, and Ringo wanted to use this guy, Alan Klein that had managed the Rolling Stones and had, really screwed over the Rolling Stones and stolen a lot of money and was not a good guy, Alan Klein. They wanted him to be the manager. And Paul McCartney wanted his father-in-law, Lee Eastman, the, the, the father of Linda Eastman, to be their manager. And that was a huge rift in the Beatles. All came down to business, man. Yes, Tony, you've never heard of Carnival of Light. Yes, this is like a, a crazy... A crazy, insane track that was uh, was considered for the anthology, and it was also left off there. It's one of the few things left in the Beatles vaults that's never, ever seen the light of day. And there's so much Beatles stuff out there. Um, let's see here. I don't think I saw that teaser either. I'm going to have to look that up. 
so this guy Dylan says, I have seen over an hour of the completed series of its three two-hour films. So it's six hours. And he says, and he can confirm that, as it has already been suggested, The Beatles Get Back is indeed a counter-narrative to the glum Let It Be and an experience that will leave even the most idolant, I don't know how to pronounce that word, idolant, Beatles fans smiling from blue meanie ear to blue meanie ear. I mean, I'm stoked to hear that. But again, you know, let's also remember one thing here. Let's look up this word idolant first because... That's what we do. If I could find it, uh, cannot find the word idolant. Where did I put it? There it is. Let's look this up real quick. Idolant. Oh, it's idolant. Wanting to avoid activity or exertion. Interesting. Okay. Um, you know the the cameras are rolling on them, so. Of course, the, we're not going to see all the stuff that's happening, like all the lunchroom banter. That's where like the real the real shit is going down. You know what I mean? Of course, they're yucking it up for the cameras. So I feel like this is sort of again, if anything, you know, they said something similar that the white album sessions were super tense, and then, you know, after going through all the outtakes, they determined that 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 was not exactly the case at all, and that you know it was everything was a lot more lighthearted. Than, than what what was once thought, um, and that I would say I would more would be more likely I would believe that because they're being recorded in a way where they don't think that's ever going to be heard. The Beatles in 1968 don't think that these outtakes are going to be re-released for the 50th anniversary release of the White Album. You know what I mean? Remixed by the son of George Martin. You know what I'm saying? Like they, they're not intending that people are ever going to hear that stuff. So that's a much more accurate representation of how they really are acting with each other, as opposed to them seeing that there are cameras on them and thinking any which part of this footage is going to be in this documentary. And therefore we have to maintain some sort of semblance of, you know, civility towards each other, but who knows? Um, but he can confirm because he's seen one hour of six hours. My God, we have six hours of unseen Beatles narrative to explore. I cannot wait. Uh, he said, and of course, I, I truly believe this too. I think it's totally going to be, it's, he says, it's quite simply a joy to watch. I think it will be. I really, really do. The films are yet another example of how Apple Corp has, or Apple Corp, I don't know how you, how you say that, Corpse Corp? how Apple Corps has turned the Beatles into the quintessential heritage act, a journey that started way back in the 1990s with the Beatles anthology project. I remember, man, I remember because that's where, you know, 1995 is when I got into the Beatles. My dad, my dad got me the white album. It's kind of like a Hanukkah gift along with the red album, which was the compilation put out through Alan Klein in 1974. And like that, and then right as that was happening, the, the the Beatles anthology was coming out, and I remember watching that on TV. That was the biggest friggin' event ever, and then they released the two singles. It was huge. It was huge, man. Uh, that was a huge deal in the '90s. Uh, it was perhaps fitting that the 19 that 1995 was the year Britpop peaked, not with the ascendancy of yet another band trying to swim in the wake of the Beatles, but with the Beatles themselves. 
on on December 4th, EMI released Free as a Bird, a song originally written and recorded in 1977 as a home demo by John Lennon, adapted by the remaining Beatles, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr. Although Lennon had died in 1980, Starr said the three of them agreed that they would pretend that John had gone out for lunch or for a cup of tea. I mean, but two, a couple of things to, to, to note here, super quick, super, super quick. Number one. Free as a bird is is unbelievable. I'm gonna say this a lot because it's true. It's I'm gonna keep using the word masterpiece. It's a friggin' masterpiece, and it sounds like what the beat if the Beatles had reunited, or maybe if the Beatles had never stopped making music, and that's just what they were putting out in 1995. That's exactly what the Beatles would sound like. It just it sounds like that future progression that we would all couldn't possibly imagine, and like it's real, and like that's the Beatles, and it's friggin'. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal song, and it's beautiful. And the other thing I wanted to say is, you know, when the Beatles were recording the last Beatles recording sessions before 1994, 1995, when they were doing the anthology project, featured only Ringo, George, and Paul, because John, as I said, John had left in September of 1969. Those guys were recording songs as late as early 1970 for the Let It Be album that they were trying to put out. For instance, John Lennon is no longer a member of the Beatles when they're recording I Me Mine in like January of 1970. That just features George, Paul, and Ringo. You know, I mean, John wasn't on recordings. John doesn't play on any of George's songs on Abbey Road. He just didn't give a shit. You know what I mean? Like he just stopped showing up. You know, uh, for certain things they just didn't care about. Even in 1968, you know, they were oh, he was very uninterested in anything that George was doing, and so therefore he would just sort of like kick back and sort of hang out, not really get super involved. Although he was always happy to have George record on his stuff. You know what I mean? And we see that in 1972 with "How Can You Sleep," which is a jab at Paul McCartney, who wrote a song called "Too Many People" on Ram which was uh, aimed at uh, John Lennon. Okay, I definitely remember more than I thought I remembered. In any case, I mean, this is not like anything super shocking or shouldn't have been anything. This shouldn't have been super shocking because 25 years prior, they had been recording without John Lennon anyway. But still, the, the sentiment and the idea is there, that there are four Beatles and that with one of them out there, they can never truly be the Beatles. And the closest thing I could do to re, re, uh, to replicate the Beatles is to record uh, a demo that John did. And they had to have Jeff Lynn. Jeff Lynn from ELO is the biggest Beatles fan ever, which I talked about on Good Morning From Us. You know, um, Jeff Lynn had to like do all sorts of stuff to that tape in order to uh, get the timing just right. You know, and they're doing it. I mean, this is right before, you know, people are really diving in deep with digital pro tools. I I think this is all being done analog on on a big board. You know what I mean? Like, it's so insane. It's just so insane what they were doing Um, to to make that stuff work. Okay. The single was released as part of the promotional promotion for the Beatles anthology video documentary series and the Anthology One compilation, the first of three double albums, and they're great double albums from their recording career. The first album included material from the band's days of The Quarrymen, the famous Decca audition tape, 
Decca auditioned. Decca passed on the Beatles, saying that guitar groups were going out of style. This was in 1961. Pete Best was still the drummer. And, you know, Pete Best was kicked out and Ringo Starr replaced him. And people were always like, you know, felt really bad for freaking, you know, Pete Best because, you know, he had sort of like literally, you know, uh, gotten a, a sort of a shit deal. The Beatles went on to becoming the Beatles without him. Uh, but he did get his million dollar payday. It just took three decades because he plays on the Decca auditions and he did get mechanical royalties. He was, he was, he was paid handsomely for the inclusion of those Decca audition tapes. So good for Pete best. The only Beatle I've ever seen live, by the way, funny enough. Uh, the first album included material from the band's days of the Quarrymen, the famous Decca audition tape and sessions from the Beatles for sale album. Uh, there were recordings from their days in Hamburg, as well as the performance on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1964, which introduced them to American teenagers. That's the birth of Beatlemania. And for the Beatles, it couldn't have come at a better time, because as soon as the anthology one charted above Oasis, What's the Story, Morning Glory, the second biggest album of the year, the Beatles were suddenly cool again, possibly even cooler than Oasis and definitely cooler than any other band flying under the Brit pop umbrella. And, you know, and this is so true. The Beatles anthology was basically Beatlemania too. I could not agree more with that statement. So true. It really did felt like a, another Beatlemania, at least from my POV as a, as a young child, like a man, young man, child, I was a young child. Um, but just like just blown away and so enthralled with, with the Beatles and, you know, just pouring over the cassette tape art, which was so tiny uh, because it was the only thing I had. And, you know, then renting hard days night, seeing that, you know, and that, John voice of doom says, imagine that your job is, is to get bands and sign them to your label and you don't sign the Beatles. I mean, yeah, that's what like A&R guys do. And yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's historically considered to be one of the biggest blunders ever, but at the same time, you know, you're signing the Beatles with Pete best and the Beatles with Pete best versus the Beatles with Ringo Starr is a completely different animal that, you know, they were, they needed to replace Pete best. He was not a good drummer. Uh, 1995 was the year in which the Beatles had a full on resurrection. And, you know, I would say that, I mean, what it's talking about here, but it's like the Beatles, the, the Beatles, you know, be truly became multi-generational in the, in the mid nineties with the anthology. That's when, you know, again, like I said, I was a part of that generation of kids who were exposed to the Beatles 25 years after they were no more and truly, and, you know, I guess it really is. It's like, you know, I mean, maybe you could say it started in the seventies. If you're comparing it to the fifties, the stuff of the fifties, when people are rediscovering it in the seventies and, you know, you have stuff like, like happy days becoming, you know, uh, you know, the, the first wave of fifties of nostalgia. Right. So now it's like, it's like the nineties and there's seventies nostalgia, Beatles nostalgia in the seventies. Night, the year 1975 um, was the year in which the Beatles had a full-on resurrection, although they were only partially responsible for it themselves. 
While the anthology project certainly reignited interest in the band, the Beatles were also a fundamental part of the Britpop DNA and hence unavoidable. Plus, Ian McDonald's 1994 book, Revolution in the Head, The Beatles Records and the 60s, had given them a kind of critical reevaluation that was hard to ignore. A sunny optimism permeated everything and possibilities seemed limitless, he ruled. The Beatles were at their peak and were looking up in awe as arbiters of a positive new age in which the dead customs of the old generation would be refreshed and remade through the creative energy of the classless young. The book's commentary was not just encyclopedic, but its cultural scholarship also painted the Beatles as genuine pop geniuses and with good reason. Interesting. I've never read this book and I've read a lot of book of books about the Beatles. So I'm going to check that out. Um, after all, these young men once ruled the world and that's friggin' true. They did. They once, you know, they say that there are three B's in the sixties, right? You have three B's. You have bond, you have Batman, the, the Adam West Batman, and you have Beatles, man, the three B's of the sixties. Um, as their friend Eric Clapton said once, in the early days, what was good about being George's friend was that there was kind of like basking in the sunshine of this immense creativity. Whenever we were together in public, for all the amount of weight I thought I carried, I would turn into nobody. If we were going into a restaurant or a club, the way people would behave around the Beatles aura was beyond belief. Could you imagine? And could you imagine too? Imagine this, man. Imagine this. Imagine being like, you know, and I think about it like I'm about to say something really silly. But like I, when I look at Paul McCartney, like especially today, like he is a god in my eyes. He is. He's like a living musical god. You know, like this dude, literally, like all this stuff that we're talking about, all this like legendary shit, like that's his life. This dude is still walking the earth, man. Like, it's just so crazy to me. It's so crazy. Could you imagine, like, and to have such a, the temperament that Paul McCartney has, considering everything that he's seen, everything that he's witnessed, and everything that he's done. <sighs> crazy. Really, really crazy stuff. Um, 1995, I hate that this guy writes out 1995. It seems kind of pretentious to me, but whatever. The article is written well. 1995 also saw the pendulum slowly start to swing back to McCartney. Uh, as from here on, it would it would start to be him who the culture would hold up as King Beetle. It was if it was as if people had suddenly realized that yes, John Lennon was 15 years dead, but we still had half of the greatest write, writing partnership in the history of pop walking among us making records, touring, appearing on TV, and influencing an entire generation of music, musicians and nascent stars obsessed with this old band. And that's true. And, you know, Paul has talked about this in the press in various different ways. But, like, you know, when, when, when John died, when John was killed, when he was assassinated, I mean, he became, he achieved sainthood. He became... Uh, he became beyond a, a living God. He became like, 
you know, immortalized in, in sainthood is, I think that's like the best way to describe it really. And he's talked about, he's admitted that it's like, it's totally like sort of always, he's always sort of trailed in the shadow of that sainthood of John Lennon, you know, because like, you know, in Paul McCartney's mind, Paul McCartney knew John as a man. Like we look at John Lennon and we're like, that's not a man. That's like a fucking God. That's like a, a, a God, like a God, you know what I mean? Like, he's like the fucking dude, you know, but he's like, is this just the book that I should have been with when, you know, we were trying. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll shut up. <laughs> uh, during the 1980s, the Beatles, this guy has a good, this guy has a good perception on, on things actually. Uh, during the 1980s, the Beatles had started to become uh, vici- vitiated. I can't. How do you pronounce that word? Vitiated? Let's look that up. Uh, spoil or impair the quality or efficiency of. Okay. Had become vitiated. Uh, uh, marginalized even by a culture that perhaps felt it had learned everything there was to know about them. Uh, While the Beatles had never quite gone out of fashion, during this decade, the remaining members were probably at their lowest point creatively. I I would totally agree with everything that this dude is saying in that regard. With Ringo Starr narrating Thomas the Tank Engine and Friends, George Harrison releasing novelty songs such as Got, uh, Got My Mind Set On You, which is a fun track and a really fun music video. And McCartney uh, sullying his image with substandard album fillers. And that's true. Paul McCartney, you know, look no further than Paul, Paul McCartney has some great solo albums, but look no further than see why the Beatles were the Beatles and why they needed each other to make the great things that they make. Then look at Paul McCartney's solo career without the other three. And you'll see so much filler, so much just fluff, uh, uh, tr- tr- unbridled, raw creativity without any kind of check or balance that you would need from a guy like John Lennon. You know what I mean? Paul McCartney was the sunny optimist and John Lennon was the acerbic pessimist. And you needed the yin to the yang in order a great example it's getting better all the time better but no it couldn't get no worse that's that's john lennon paul mccartney singing it's getting better all the time and john lennon singing it couldn't get no worse and that is the the yin yang also the idea that paul mccartney writes you know fluffy broadway like show tune like you know, smiling, you know, with uh, sunshine and rainbows and, you know, does it on all these different instruments, yada, yada, yada. And John Lennon just writes like these raw, like, you know, emotional, like brutally honest songs, you know, uh, and they just together, that's what makes that's what makes them so great. But without one of those things, you just get too much of that one thing. And Paul McCartney's solo career, unfortunately, is a great example of that. That being said, Paul McCartney is like fucking, you know, 
a 79 or at the time, I mean, now he's like 81 now or whatever, 79 years old doing a three hour set to, to a sold out stadiums. Like he's a fucking God, dude. He's like a fucking God. Uh, his last two albums were really great too. Egypt station was great and new was great. So, you know, um, Tony has a great comment here. Lennon was a great editor for Paul. He was. And Paul for, for John, you know, well, Lennon was a great editor for Paul and he could see the greatness in Paul and pull it out. And the vice versa of that was Paul was a great competitive spirit. Paul brought out the creativity out of John to like write something because he had to, you know, either show up Paul or be neck and neck with Paul, you know? Um, and I mean, there's definitely financial motivations there too, because they were the biggest percentage owners of Northern songs, which was the publishing company of which George and Ringo also had a percentage in. So, you know, Ringo, uh, George didn't, didn't have his own publishing company until publishing until after the Beatles with Harris songs. Um, and before that it was just Northern songs. And so just to give you an example, because they were all under the same publishing, which would allow them to get more money or something. There was some financial benefit to it, but a great example. And this is why George wrote a song called it's only a Northern song because George would write a song and Lennon and McCartney would make more money off of George's song because they were bigger percentage holders in the publishing than George, even though it was George's song. Um, kind of insane, right? Kind of crazy. Also a reason why, like, the more songs you have, the more you're going to get paid. And so they're, like, kind of just sort of going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Um, yes, Paul. Paul was the walrus. Um, John Voice of Doom says that he loved Wings in the 70s. Those tunes always send me back. You know, I am, I, I got to tell you, Wings is a ginormous blind spot for me in the McCartney solo output as well. I mean, except for Band on the Run. Band on the Run is great. Mrs. Mrs. Vanderbilt could easily be a, um, what's it called? Uh, uh, an outtake on the White Album, if you ask me. Uh, let's, let's read this because we're going to be here all night. Well, for you guys, it's not the night, but for me, it's, it's 1230 at night. The Beatles anthology. Oh, God, where was I? The Beatles anthology changed all that. Anthology and a generation of 1960s obsessed musicians who weren't even born when the Beatles started their journey. I didn't read that sentence right. It was almost as though the stars of Britpop had been acting as fluffers for the Beatles. As for the three years prior, rarely a week had gone by without a member of Oasis, Blur, Pulp, or whoever making a reference to the Fab Four. Oasis themselves have been called the Sex Beatles, the Coarse Grain Beatles, the Man, the Man, the Mancunian Beatles, the Mancunian Beatles, the Burnage Beatles. Noel Gallagher actually learned to play guitar by listening to the Beatles' Red and Blue albums. I've never been a big Oasis guy. I just don't. I don't get that. I don't get that. Those guys. I don't. As big of a Beatles fan as I am. Journalists contributed to this fetishistic narrative by constantly writing about the way in which Brit Britpop was being framed by the Beatles themselves, or at least by the Beatles industry. 
If you trawl back through the mountain of press coverage surrounding even the most mediocre Britpop backs, it is remarkable how often you see the word Beatlesque. This could have been referring to anything from Penny Lane-style piano clusters and overuse of cellos, close harmonies, colloquial lyrics, nonsense words, gang-like group photographs, upbeat radio interviews, 1960s-inspired clothes, pop art graphics, puddle bowl haircuts, jangly guitars, rudimentary drumming. You could take your pick. All of those things being, you know, uh, describers of, uh, you know, adjectives of, of beetle, of beetle, beetleism. <laughs> I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> so stupid. Sorry. Um, Hanif Qureshi, I'm sorry, probably butchered that, uh, once said that by 1966, the Beatles behaved as if they spoke directly to the whole world. That is that is super true, especially with what John said about Jesus. Um, and they did, but completely in their own vernacular. Beetle World was full of 10 bob notes, dress, dressing gowns, the national health, plastic porters, and men from the motor motoring trade. Beetle World, their own vernacular, I got it. Beetlewood was full of 10 bob notes, dressing gowns, the national health, plastic porters, and men from the motoring trade. The Beatles were British, and their style and their idiom were as, as important and as, as influential as the music they made. Hence the wholesale adoption of the band by the protagonists of Britpop. Um, the Beatles were freshly placed before the public by the anthology series. It says, sorry. The Beatles were freshly placed before the public by the anthology series, says music journalist David Hepworth. Because this happened to be around the time of Britpop, they seem to have emerged from the process for many people as the godfathers of Blur. Um, the anthology series afforded the band a resurrection of sorts, both for those who had fallen in love with them in real time as they had defined and redefined the 60s on a weekly basis, and additionally for those who were becoming acquainted with them for the first time during a period that seemed to have been completely framed by the decade the Beatles more or less created. That I fall into the latter category for sure. All of a sudden, the Beatles had some agency in their own legacy, and from now on, they would start to control that legacy by creating new Beatles projects, like one. So check this out. I think it was around the year 2000. One comes out. It's all the Beatles' number one hits. It's 20 number one hits. Comes out on compact disc. It's a group. By the way, if you want to buy, for me, when I buy a wedding gift, I like to buy a turntable. You need to have a vinyl that goes with the turntable. And the best vinyl that you're going to, the best vinyl that you're going to friggin' uh, get is the Beatles one, you know, 20 Beatles songs on one vinyl. It's perfect. It's the perfect gift for people that love them. And everybody loves the Beatles. Mostly. If so, if everybody loves the Beatles, it's just, it's just the way to go. Um, so yeah, one was huge. That was its own thing. And I mean, my God, it's like they, they, they conquered. Could you, do you, do you realize the amount of money they were making on the same catalog, just repackaged 
slightly differently from what it had been in 1974 when the blue and the white albums came out, which in it of itself, those two compilations were ginormous selling. I mean, it's just, it's, it is crazy, man. Uh, Let it be naked is the stripping down. That was a Paul motivated project. He was super pissed at Phil Spector for, for putting strings on the long and winding road on let it be. So let it be naked is stripping away all of the Phil Spector production and just kind of giving it its own raw thing and including don't let me down, which was a single initially. And, uh, you know, I like let it be naked. It's great. Love by Cirque, Cirque de Soul. I know I pronounced that wrong, but yeah, which I have yet to see. And I swear the day I go to Vegas, it's going to be the first thing I do is see love. Those soundtracks were phenomenal because uh, Giles Martin, ow, keep electrocuting myself on my computer. Giles Martin friggin' um, did these crazy Beatles remixes, man. Like, listen to Drive My Car on the love thing. It's great. It's really, really great. Um, it goes from Drive My Car into The Word into... Wait, it's the word. Stop what you're doing. I'm feeling blue and lonely. Would it be so much? It's like a rem. It's like rem. It's like fusing different Beatles songs together. Uh, the benefit of Mr. Kite and Helter Skelter get fused together. Really great stuff. Um, yeah, the Yellow Submarine soundtrack, and of course, the all-important agreement between Apple Corps. EMI and Apple Inc. finally allowing the band's songs to become available on iTunes. That was a huge thing. I feel like Rolling Stone wrote about that every single week. Like it was like this big, I remember when that happened. That was a huge thing. And the contextualizing uh, and contextualizing their paths in the process. Because here's the thing when Apple, like Apple computers came out, like they got sued by the Beatles or Apple the Beatles Apple like like became litigious over them. And the, the agreement was that as long as they don't get involved with music, they could use the name Apple. And then iTunes came out and that sent the Beatles or whatever the interests of the Beatles into um, uh, froth and theory in, 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 the, in the courtroom. Uh, trying to settle the situation. Finally, it did get settled. And that was huge. I remember that happened in 2010. And there were big billboards. You'd be driving into Manhattan and you'd see these ginormous billboards with the Beatles being on iTunes. We haven't even gotten to the interview yet. This friggin' article is so long. Um, there's a picture of the Beatles. Look at that. Look at that. That's like a scanned frame from from pj's thing the beatles get back is another step i, I see why that we he, he's like me he needs to go through the whole thing just to get to the topic you know it's just like me the beatles get back is another step in the long and winding road to enhance immortality as the films show the beatles at the very top of their game and not deteriorating as they appeared to be in michael Lindsay hogg's let it be the Beatles' very last film was a massive downer when it was released in 1970, and it has remained a downer, downer ever since. Not that many people have seen it since then, as video releases were limited and DVDs never materialized, reportedly because it cast the band in such a poor light. That is 
Ringo Starr and Paul McCartney and the widows just going to work to make sure that that doesn't happen or that that film doesn't come out properly. The film documents the group rehearsing and recording songs on the soundstage at, yeah, it was Twickenham Film Studios. No, I'm sorry, it was a film studio for what would become their 12th studio album, Let It Be, except that's not correct. It was supposed to be called Get Back. It was the Get Back Project. It eventually became Let It Be in January of 1969. The film includes an unannounced rooftop concert, which was, again, you know, talking about poor management or just sort of like, you know, becoming sloppy. The Beatles had all these grand plans. They wanted to perform at like a Roman Coliseum. They wanted to do uh, like all these different things they were going to do. They were going to perform on a boat down the river Nile, maybe it's like all these crazy ideas that, excuse me, um, that never materialized because they just, you know, they were, there was so much infighting over management and lots of things that were happening, you know, let alone, you know, Yoko Ono and stuff like that, or George wanting to be his own man. Finally, uh, a lot of stuff is going on, but they ended up just doing an un- unannounced rooftop concert by the band above their Savile Row, Row headquarters their last live public performance. However, ill feeling permeates the film and the abiding abiding impression one gets is that by now the band have seriously fallen out of love with each other, bickering distractedly through the proceedings. It was not exactly a fitting testament to the Beatles' glorious seven-year run. Remember, we talked about seven years. But at the time, it was thought to be an accurate portrayal of of the way that they felt about each other. But this was not the case. And Jack, I I see this drives me crazy. It absolutely was the case. I don't. It doesn't matter what anybody says. It was the case. You need to read "You Never Give Me Your Money" by Pete Hoggett. That book really talks about all the shit that was going down. Um, and Jackson's Get Back supports this in full. Throughout the new uh, new films, you see the band laughing and smiling and genuinely collaborating. Of course, they were, and that was never going to stop. And they were under deep they were under deep intense pressure to do so, because if they they were trying to make you know they they had to put on this show. The idea was to do a show, and not just to do any show, but to do a show with completely new material that they had written, you know, specifically for said show. That's what Get Back was supposed to be. Um, you'll see them finishing each other's gags. You'll see Ringo, of course, because that's what they do. That that's that's just like it's still, you know, that's how they blow off steam. There's still the Beatles. It doesn't mean that they weren't breaking up and like having serious turmoil. I, this is such like a again, this is like a beetle washing of of the of the reality of the situation. Um, You'll see them finishing each other's gags. You'll see Ringo rearranging the tea towels on his tom-toms. Ringo would muffle his his calfskin drums with various different towels, sometimes a pack of cigarettes, to get a very distinct, muffled, restrained sound, which is another reason why Ringo's a genius, if you ask me. Um... And you'll see, and you, uh, you, uh, blah, blah. you'll see Ringo rearranging the tea towels on his tom toms, and Yoko Ono and Linda McCartney happily nattering to each other. 
You'll see John scribbling down the lyrics for Don't Get Me Down. That's going to be awesome. You'll see vast amounts of funny interplay, and in one particular jaw-dropping moment, you'll see George calmly suggesting that McCartney's recently unveiled masterpiece, Let It Be, might be improved by a short intro. What, like this, asked McCartney, literally inventing the famous introduction right before our eyes. Jackson trawled through 56 hours of previously unreleased studio footage from the original Let It Be sessions, as well as 140 hours of audio. Now, like I said, some of that stuff has leaked, particularly the audio. The Nagra reels have leaked. I have a ton of them. A whole bunch of them have leaked. But... The, the the that footage has never seen the light of day. I mean, m- probably most of the hours of audio hasn't either, but a lot of it has come out. I mean, it bootlegged heavily in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, the footage, now revisited by Jackson in a new light, is the only material of note that documents the Beatles at work in the studio. It's like a time machine transports us back to 1969 and we get to sit in the studio and watch these four friends make great music together, Jackson said. When he first started working his way through it, uh, Jackson said when he first started working his way through it. The series attempts to recut Lindsay Hogg's film to show the camaraderie that still existed between the Beatles. This is, uh, I mean, this is, uh, uh, this is rewriting history, if, if you ask me. Um, it's not to say that those moments obviously weren't there. It's just like you're, you're glossing over the negative stuff when, because you're thinking about legacy instead of, you know, journalistic integrity. Um, the series attempts to recut Lindsay Hogg's film to show the camaraderie that still existed between the Beatles, as well as to challenge those long held assertions that the project was entirely marketed, uh, marked by ill feeling and it does so in spades. I man, I, I know this guy's seen the stuff, but again, remember this too. We're seeing six hours that is comprised of fifty-six hours out of two weeks of time in a studio when tensions were at their absolute highest with everything that was going on for anybody who is a Beatles historian like myself. So this is a load of hogwash, a little bit. If I'm being brutally honest, as stoked as I am about it, this is a little bit of little hogwash E, if you ask me. Of course, here comes the next line. Produced in cooperation with McCartney, Starr, and the Widows, Lennon and Harrison, because how else would you make something like this? I mean, it's the only way. And is it good for the legacy? Yes, of course it's going to be good for the legacy. And is it something that I desperately want to see? Of course it's something I desperately want to see. But let's not make any mistake and realize that, you know, and that's the problem with documentary, even like the documentary stuff that I'm trying to do. Everybody has an agenda. There's an agenda. Agendas come with documentaries and it's very hard to be completely unbiased. The best way to be unbiased really, I mean, that's the thing. It's like you form an opinion about the, the things that you're shooting, the images that you're shooting, you're forming an opinion. And then in order to further conform that opinion, you are maybe being more selective about what you're choosing to shoot. You know what I mean? So suddenly you have this idea or belief in your mind. And then all of a sudden you're going to shoot footage that best represents whatever that idea is in your mind. And in that way, the only true documentary footage is closed circuit 
you know, security footage, the most unbiased thing out there. You know, there's no agenda with footage like that, but that's also like impossible. There's like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a seesaw. There's a, there's a, a push and pull with that sort of stuff. Um, it will have the full force of Apple marketing machine when it's released on Disney plus in November. I can't wait. That's my birthday month. This is the best birthday present ever. And deservedly so. In a news release, McCartney said, I'm really happy that Peter has delved into our archives to make a series that shows the truth about the Beatles recording together. While Starr stated, there were hours and hours of us just laughing and playing music. Not at all like the Let It Be film that came out in 1970. And of course, that film too is not completely honest because it's trying to be sensationalized. It's trying to be sensational too. It's trying to find an... You're under pressure to find an arc, an angle, a thing to, you know, sort of, uh, you know, leverage your film. And yeah, this is the film about the Beatles breaking up and we're going to call it Let It Be because we should just let it be. It's got to happen. You know, the, nothing we can do to stop it. Um, so the, every every which way you look, there is agenda. Uh, you know, you want to know something? In a way, I would say They Shall Not Grow Old probably is pretty is, is fairly unbiased in that kind of way. You know, um, we still haven't gotten to the friggin' Peter Jackson stuff. Finally, here's the Peter Jackson stuff. How how long is this? Jesus fucking Christ! Oh my lord! All right, oh fuck! This is so long. It started so late at night, and I talk so much. <laughs> oh my god! All right, we gotta do this. We gotta do this. Um, he does. I watched more than an hour of the series one night in April, and I had a smile on my face for at least 24 hours afterwards. In fact, I enjoyed it so much that I'm fairly sure I was smiling when I was asleep. A few days later, I spoke with Peter Jackson by Zoom. He was still in New Zealand editing Get Back, and it was the first interview he gave to support the films. Uh, first of all, Peter, this is Dylan. First of all, Peter, I just can't get... I, blah, 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 blah. First of all, Peter, can I just offer my congratulations as I think this series is going to please a hell of a lot of people. It's a masterpiece. How long until it's finished? Peter Jackson says, thank you. It's actually a very good question. I can't, and I actually can't answer it because we're still editing. Normally I do interviews when the project is finished and ideally when the interviewer has had a chance to see the whole thing. But this is an extreme case, as I, as I am still editing, so I don't know how long it will be. But I'm trying to make sure that everything that should be in there is in there. It won't be short. It's very linear. That's awesome. That's so awesome to hear. So it literally begins on day one, which is January 2nd, because they took New Year's Day off, and finishes on day 22. So it was 22 days. So it was three weeks, not two weeks. I was wrong about that. Uh, which is uh, 31st of January, and we go through each day telling the story. Holy shit! That is amazing! Ah, I'm so excited! Oh my god, Let It Be took a very different approach, and it was randomly, uh, as it was randomly cut, and then finishes with the rooftop concert. Um, Dylan asks, what was the original brief? Did Apple basically ask you to make the Beatles look like they liked each other. I'm so glad he asked that question. Dylan, you rock, man, because that needed to that that needed to be asked. If I was interviewing Peter Jackson and I had the, the stones or I 
didn't care, I would, I would ask him that. Peter says, I wasn't given any brief, really. I was in a meeting with Apple because they had heard I was interested in doing a lot of experiments with AI. They were thinking of doing some kind of traveling Beatles exhibition, which is no longer happening, I don't think. I asked them what happened to all the rushes from Let It Be. As uh, blah, blah, blah. I asked them what happened to all the rushes from Let It Be, as couldn't we utilize some of that in the exhibition? They said they didn't want to use any, as they were thinking of making a documentary using the outtakes. Wow. And he said, and so I said, if you're looking for someone to do that, I would be interested. Perfect guy to ask that question. Yeah. Um, so I asked to see the rushes and I was hooked immediately. Growing up as a Beatles fan, I had the perception of it being a completely miserable period of time and thought that if Let It Be used the best bits, then the rest of it must be awful. I took the rushes back home to New Zealand on an iPad and I phoned them up and said, yep, I'm in. We've been editing the series for about two years now and it's the longest editing I've ever done in my career. Wow. I mean, you normally edit a movie like Lord of the Rings type in about three to four months. What? So he's doing Lord of the Rings in three to four months, and this took him two years. It's a very complicated thing to cut. I couldn't imagine. I couldn't even imagine. Why has it taken so long? Asked Dylan. Well, they were, they were only using two 16-millimeter film cameras. There was no clapboard, and the audio wasn't synced. Oh, holy shit. All right. For those of you who don't understand how much of a nightmare that is today, in today's technology, from this laptop, and I consider myself to be a sinking savant, I can sync stuff really well. And I, I've done a lot of live uh, music performance, and I know how to sync. I'm very good at syncing audio. It's, it's just like one of my specialties. I really don't feel like I'm tuning my own horn when I'm saying that. I'm just stating fact. I really am good. Now it's even easier. You have Pluralize, which is software that automatically analyzes waveforms and syncs them up. You have Premiere Pro. There's literally a button you can click and synchronize. It's never been easier to synchronize footage. However, friggin' 16 millimeter Oh my God, Nagra, like we talked about 130 hours of Nagra footage to sync up to 56 hours of 16 millimeter film on two different cameras. Holy shit. That is insane. They should make a documentary about the making of this documentary. Um, so on any given day, the Beatles worked for about eight or nine hours. You might have five or six hours of sound but a lot less film because they because they had the the Nagras are always running and the cameras are only shooting stuff when they needed to. They couldn't literally have cameras rolling, you know, 24-7. That that's why there's only 56 hours. It's a lot easier to just set up a tape and let it let it roll. You know what I mean? The sound would be rolling. And so when we look at the dailies, we get a black screen and then suddenly we've got picture, but the picture might last for 17 seconds and then goes off. And then we're back, back, back to black screen again. So these literally these filmmakers with these two cameras are capturing moments. They're capturing candid moments 
and they have the way that they just, they're just recording, <laughs> just constantly recording audio at all times. And it's all analog. Like, this is insane. Like, that is literally insane. Um, Dylan says, it's incredibly exhilarating watching all the Beatles interact with each other because we've always been led to believe that the sessions were unbearable. You know what? In fairness, the White Album sessions were also considered to be, well, we talked about this already. The, the White Album sessions were supposed to be very tense too. And I think, again, like I said, I think that they're glossing over they're glossing over a lot of BS, man. This is all BS. Like that, there was absolutely bad blood going on. Um, Peter Jackson says, "The moment when George is arguing with Paul, which you see in the original film, is actually the worst of it." You know when, and again, these guys are on. They know that there are cameras on them. Of course, they're on their best behavior. Like I mean, I think that goes without saying. Uh, when George says, I'll play whatever you want me to play, or I won't play at all if you don't want me to play. You know, I'll do anything to please you sort of thing. I've tried to use nothing at all from Let It Be. So Get Back is completely different. That's cool, too. So you can literally watch Let It Be and then watch Get Back and see two completely different things. By the way, a great example. Here's a great example of the negativity that was going on at this time. Just just so we can really you know drive this point home. There, I, I spoke before about how I Me Mine is on Let It Be and that it was recorded by uh, George, Paul, and Ringo in January or February of 1970 after John was way out, like just gone, already recording Plastic Ono Band and doing Cold Turkey and Give Peace a Chance and yada, yada, yada. Um, Freaking the reason why they're recording I Mean Mine is because Alan Klein or somebody in the Beatles camp said, we need to include this song because in the documentary, there's this whole part where they're, they're going running through I Mean Mine. And the only reason why it was included is because it shows a bit of footage where John Lennon picks Yoko Ono up when they're supposed to be rehearsing I Mean Mine and as a just as a total like f you to George, just totally like spitting in his face, they just start waltzing to the song, and it's just totally done in like a super obnoxious way. And because John and Yoko are doing a waltz, it is decided that I Me Mine should be one of the songs that they record for Let It Be because it's because it's the soundtrack to the album. Okay. So that just gives you a, a, an example as to why the, you know, there was a lot going on, let alone, I, I don't even, I, are they not going to talk about the fist fight between uh, John Lennon and George? And like the, they had to have like these tense peace talks, you know, after George basically quit the band, you know I mean? Come on. That's, that's such bullshit, man. Um, he says, I've tried to use nothing at all from Let It Be, so Get Back is completely different. I didn't want to usurp the original film, so this is a companion piece. That is awesome. Uh, but the one area we did break that rule is that little exchange between Paul and George, because I didn't want to be accused of sanitizing the films by not having that, because that's the bit that everybody remembers. But we've gotten, but we've given people the context for the interaction by showing the full 
six minute conversation. Okay, that is really cool. It no longer feels like an argument. It no longer feels like Paul is getting on George's nerves. You understand why what Paul's trying to achieve. And George is dead and Paul is alive. Right? I, what would Paul, what would George Harrison say about this right now? If I mean this is very serving to Paul. Paul as is a wonderful human being and an incredible man, but he's not past being self-serving. He's very much a self-serving guy. And sometimes at the expense of the other Beatles, very easily. And, you know, he's capable of dastardly dirty things too, which I won't get into, but he does. Um, you understand where George is coming from. You understand where Paul is coming from. And the whole thing actually makes sense. The thing is, when the film was released, the Beatles were breaking up, but they weren't breaking up when they were making Let It Be, which was recorded a year earlier. So I suppose it would have been odd to release a film when they're all enjoying each other's company, except that the band had already, as I said, the band had started breaking up as early as 1967, okay? The band was 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 seriously rifting during 1968, during the making of the white album. Of course they were, they were, this was a, this was a fracture that was slowly breaking things apart, man. I feel like now I have to do a video that talks about the factors as to why the Beatles broke up. Um, Dylan says, it's lovely to watch the rapport between them all. Of course, because they've been together for the last 10 years, 12 years, 13 years. Of course, they're going to have a rapport. Of course, they're going to be, they're brothers, Brothers are at each other's throats one minute, and the next minute they're cool, you know, and especially because they not only have they been together for 13 years, 10 years, whatever, depending on the, the combination of people, but they've also been through this incredible, insanely condensed journey together. And they own, it's like they have a bond from that journey, like, you know, where really when you think about it, they, you know, that one decade was like five decades for the Beatles. Like the Beatles lived 50 years in 10 years. You know what I mean? And by that, by that notion, they knew each other for 50 years in 10 years. So of course they're going to have a rapport between them all. Um, Peter Jackson says they're all good friends and they remain good friends all the way through the series. This is before the Alan Klein period. This is not before the Alan Klein period. Uh, when they start to argue, it's fan. I don't believe. No, 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 no. Alan Klein was definitely in the picture. Alan Klein was in the picture in late 1968, as if I, if I recall correctly. Um, it's fantastic to see them still be mates, still composing. I read books that say in this period, John and Paul no longer wrote songs with each other, but that's not true, as we've got many scenes where John and Paul are still writing songs. They 100% didn't write songs together anymore. And if they were doing it, what they were doing is they were doing for the cameras. By that time, by 1965, by 1966, maybe, they were no longer writing songs together. I mean, Paul McCartney started running circles around John Harrison with his song output. There are Paul McCartney songs and there are John Lennon songs. Now, the partnership evolved over that period, right? That the partnership slowly, it, it slowly, you know, it changed. It went from sitting in, in, in John's aunt's living room on Men Love Avenue 
or 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 Paul's dad's you know house and writing a song soup to nuts you know we're like in a hotel room while on tour for you know hard days night you know what i mean soup to nuts like from the top to bottom but what would happen was they'd write songs and they'd bring them to to each other they'd hang out and they would you know uh uh john would give them middle eight and paul would say take out that line or put in this line they would give each other feedback but it was not the songwriting it was not the 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 engine that was at the 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 height the fro- the frothy height of Beatlemania. As a matter of fact, I think that really finally sort of finished in 1966 with Revolver. You know, um, it's not to say. I mean, look at in 1967 with Sergeant Pepper and you know A Day in the Life and you know Paul is missing the middle part. No, sorry, John is missing the middle part and he turns to Paul. What do you got? And Paul goes, woke up. Got out of bed, dragged a comb across my head, and doom, 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 doom. Found my way downstairs, and da 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 da. went into a dream. Robot Shlomo says, When Brian Epstein died, that was really the beginning of the end. One Robot, 150 billion percent correct. So to me, this is like, again, of course, they're going to be sitting in front of the cameras because they're trying to. This is that that Beatles glaze, that Beatles malaise. They're putting over everything. Oh, we got to act like Beatles because the cameras are rolling. My two cents. Now, were there moments where they would, you know, look at what happened with the Ballad of John and Yoko, where John and Paul got into a studio while George and Ringo weren't even there and cut a Beatles record. It's one of the only songs that feature that doesn't feature George and and Ringo, another one being yesterday. Um, but that only features John and, uh, and I mean, look at, look at the friggin' white album. There's a lot of songs where it's just, you know, look at Julia, look at Blackbird, you know, and that's not to say they are definitely there when that stuff is going down and you can hear John sort of coaching Paul on during the outtakes of, of the white album you know, when he's, when he's trying to do Blackbird or whatever, I mean, they're, they're there, but like their, their, their writing relationship changed. And so this idea of trying to break the myth that they weren't doing that stuff by that time, it's too well documented. This period is the, the, the this time, pe- so many people have been interviewed. So there's so much is known that, it's just, it's hard to believe that this sudden right turn on history is anything more than fluffing, fluffing up a legacy. That's the truth. Um, as we, uh, blah, 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 about no longer right. Uh, I read books that say in this period, John and Paul no longer wrote songs with each other, but that's not true. As so we've got many scenes where John and Paul are sitting writing songs. I mean, it's on film, it's on camera. So it's really amazing uh, to see how wrong a lot of these accounts have been. So where did it come from? From from that one documentary? That's bullshit, man. Think about all the people surrounding the Beatles that have written Beatle books, man. Like everybody, like all the people that have been interviewed. Like 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 there 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 are eyewitness accounts of how things really were. I mean, the last people you want to hear from are the Beatles themselves because they're just not going to tell the truth in this regard. In this regard, 
they're not going to tell the truth. Um, and it's not because I have special insight or I have secret understanding. It's just that it's there on camera. You get overwhelmed by it all. And I can understand why Peter Jackson would take that point of view. The post-production of Let It Be went, th went through into the Beatles breakup. And by the time of the premiere in May of 1970, they, uh, they had broken up. So the whole film was very heavily influenced by the breakup. I've gotten to know Michael Lindsay Hogg quite well, and he's really supportive of what we're doing. He says he wasn't influenced by the breakup, but I'm not sure how you wouldn't be because Let It Be does appear to show that uh, to show the sort of atmosphere at the time that led to the breakup, which is actually just simply not true because the film was shot 14 months prior to that and long before the breakup. But they were breaking up, dude. They were breaking up. They were already breaking up. There's so many things happening. You have the civil war for management. You have George wanting to expand and, and throw in his own songs. You have Yoko whispering into John's ear. You have Paul, you know, totally distracted by Linda. You know, there's so much stuff. You have the whole thing with the catalog. Dick James, who owns 50% of Northern Songs Publishing, decides to sell his stake because John Lennon is just saying such tantalizing things in the media and, you know, ends up selling his stake right out front of their noses. And they're, they're scrambling to find the money to buy their songs. That's how they lost their songs. That's how Michael Jackson wound up with their song catalog. You know, it was it was a it was an uh, not ugly, but like, I mean, it was a tumultuous time. I think tumultuous is the right word. I think somehow Michael's editing may have been influenced by the fact that he was editing while they were breaking up. So you do have a film that is going to come out after they've broken up, showing them being this is such a this is such a, um, a fluff. This is so this is such fluff trying to revise history. I'm sorry. Um, I love you, Peter Jackson. I love you, Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr, but I think this is revisionist. Um, showing them being happy and cheerful. Uh, so do you have a film that's going to come out after they've broken up, showing them being happy and cheerful? Yes, maybe Michael Lindsay Hogg zeroed in on those moments. Maybe that a, the best movie would have been the, a composite that showed everything as it was, you know, where, you know... It's hard to explain that, though. That kind of nuance is hard to explain in 90 minutes. Um, I mean, to be a relevant film at the time of its release, you had to sort of go with the breakup version. Okay, that is super true. This, you know, I, I can kind of see his point here, but I still think it's, you know. Look, I don't know. I'm putting words into Michael's mouth. He doesn't really think that influenced him, but I'm not sure. What's your favorite bit of your films? That's a question. I've never ha actually had that thought, Peter Jackson says. I mean, I guess as a Beatles fan, I love seeing them create songs out of nothing, really. I mean, what gives me a lot of what I like is when they are working on a particular song and it's not what you are used to hearing on the record. They're working it and you think, oh, that's not right. The words are different. And then they get the right words, the right riff and the right bass notes. And suddenly you see the song that you've grown up with your whole life. You see that sort of clicking into shape one bit at a time. That is really cool. And there's a sense of just waiting to go. Yeah, you guys. Uh, yeah. Yeah, guys, you keep on going. You're almost there. 
I also like the humor. I mean, there's lots of bits that make me laugh out loud. Lots of funny quips and gags. Uh, that, that famous beetle wit. I think people will be surprised by the series for two reasons. One, it will be far more intimate than they imagined it to be because everyone is used to seeing music documentaries being a bit kind of MTV-ish, sort of together in a poppy kind of way. And it's just music, 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 you know? The music isn't at the forefront of this film. Weirdly, it's what goes beyond, it's what goes on behind the music at the for, that's at the forefront. I mean, even at the rooftop concert, we have the concept that we're intercutting all the time to the street and the police and everything else. So we're not just uh, sitting there on the concert for 45 minutes. We're showing a whole narrative of what's going on elsewhere during that period. That's really cool. And that's really true of the whole series. It's not a sequence of MTV video clips of them doing songs. There's probably more conversations with the Beatles in the films than there is actually singing. People won't be expecting that. And I think that sort of intimacy, that fly on the wall aspect of it, uh, where you're in a time machine and you've gone back and you're, a fly on the, and you're a fly on the wall with the Beatles, that will, I think, surprise people because it's very intimate. I can't wait for There's a dude whose podcast, I, I, Richard Buskin, his podcasts about the Beatles. This dude is such a good Beatles historian. I I really want to hear what he thinks about all this because this dude is like that. That he's like the wizard about the be about Beatles history. Uh, that dude could teach a class. Uh, that will I think surprise people because it's very intimate. It's the Beatles as you've never seen them before. And the other thing that I think will surprise people is how funny the films are, which considering the reputation of this footage. And the Let It Be movie, you don't associate with January 1969, but they're very funny films. You just keep saying the same thing over and over again. Yeah, everything's really friendly. Oh, the guys are really funny. I really like the camaraderie. Um, no mention of the fight, the fist fight between John and George. Let's see if that pops up in this docuseries. If it's not mentioned once, then I call shenanigans. Uh, Dylan asks, how much involvement have the Beatles had? Peter says, they've seen bits and pieces and they're about to see the whole series soon. I know that if it was me and if I was the subject matter of these movies and there was some guy in New Zealand with this sort of intimate footage who disappeared for two years, I'd be a bit concerned and wondering what's going on. So what I've done is every now and then when we've cut together a little three or four minute sequence, I send it out to them. But if it's something to do with Paul, I send it to Paul and if, or it's, it's John, I send it to Sean. And Olivia has George's and Ringo has his. So they've all seen several several little five-minute clips, and they've been very supportive. I mean, I think they've got the attitude that enough time has gone by that it's historic now, and they are no longer trying to protect the legacy. I mean, I think that's all they're trying to do is protect the legacy because they, you know, it's the twilight years for these guys. You know, who knows when the other shoe will drop? I hate to even say that out loud. But for a long time, they didn't release any alternative tracks from it. But with the anthology series, they started to. So they've slowly warmed up to the idea of letting people under the hood, as they say, to see how things were happening. And I think now, I think they now feel with this series that it's time after 50 years to just rip off the lid and show the people what it was actually like. Because I mean, there's the Beatles, and you've never seen the Beatles like this before. There's stuff in our movies that if Michael Lindsay Hogg had tried to put in Let It Be, 
they would have said no straight away. They would have said, nope, take it out. But the whole feeling has changed now. I, okay. So maybe we will see something about the fist fight. Um, Dylan asks, have you had notes? Have they made suggestions? And Peter says, no, none, no. I mean, they've, they've, they're very hands off. They gave me the footage. I disappeared to the other side of the world with it. And I've never gone back to Britain since. The first cut was 18 hours long. Holy shit. And I'd hope there'd be an appetite to say, okay, let's do a six hour version. Oh my God. All of the footage. So it's a third long now of what it was. All the footage we've been cutting is there and we've just left it as a cutscene. So it didn't take us long to put a longer version together. I knew in this world of internet and streaming and everything else that we would find a home somewhere for a longer version. So that took the pain away from having to cut stuff out. Um, Dylan says the film obviously look beautiful. What was the decision making process to pop the color and make the Tommy Nutter suit so vibrant and put the background colors in and all of that stuff. Peter says, all we've done is use the technology we developed from the World War I film, They Shall Not Grow Old, taking all of this old first World War footage and restoring it. We haven't tried to push the primary colors out of the clothing. Uh, sorry, we haven't tried to push the primary colors of the clothing up or anything. We've done no tricks like that. We've just balanced the skin tones and the colors that you see. I'm assuming are the colors that were there on the day. I mean, does it make you jealous of the 1960s because the clothing is so fantastic? Uh, Dylan says, but there's one scene in the studio in Twickenham where there's a wall that looks completely green. And Peter says, in Twickenham... They had gray canvases around them. After the first day of filming, Tony Richmond, the DP, director of photography, looked at the rushes and he thought the gray looked really boring. So he bought colored lamps and he put filters on them. He put blobs of color on this gray wall. He put a big blob of green above purple and yellow and blue color and they sort of blend into each other and they cross over. So he turned this big gray cyclorama into a sort of summer of love type clothing behind him and that was from day two onwards uh dylan asked were there any idiomatic exchanges you had to cut because they just wouldn't have made sense 50 years later what does idiomatic mean that's a very interesting word idiomatic using containing or denoting expressions that are natural to a native speaker. I love that. Idiomatic. Now that's a good name for a film company. Idiomatic. Uh, there are a lot of references to culture at the time. So what we've tried to do is to show photographs of what they're talking about and explain it. There's a thing where John's doing Dig a Pony and he starts singing these alternative lyrics. Dickie, Dickie, Dickie Murdoch. Apparently he was a heavyweight wrestler in 1969. So we show a photo of him as John sings. That's brilliant. At one point, uh, the band turned Get Back into a protest song about Enoch Powell's immigration policies. If you're going to use their Pakistani lyrics from alternative versions, satirizing Enoch Powell, then you can't really do that without explaining to people who Enoch Powell was. The thing is, satire doesn't really work in a pop, in a pop song. 
So they were in danger of sounding like they support Enoch Powell rather than try to set him up. I've heard this version and it's, it sounds like they're singing some really racist shit. And yes, the context is super important because without that context, you just think that they're just being really just off coloredly racist <laughs> on camera. And it wasn't the case. And we know that's not the case because the Beatles refused to play to segregated audiences in the South when they first came to America. Um, they were, it was a parody satire sort of thing, but yeah, the lyrics are, are very, uh, uh, ew, cringe, uh, would be, I guess the best way to describe them. Um, Dylan at says, Dylan says, it's quite disconcerting watching the rooftop session because everything in this section of the film is so alien because it's 50 years old. But Savile Row is identical. Savile Row has not changed at all. Peter Jackson says, the last time I was in the UK, I asked to go up to the roof, which is obviously now an Abercrombie and Fitch store. They've taken the staircase out and removed a few things, but it's still the basic area where the Beatles stood and played. I looked at the skyline from the roof and the skyline on the left-hand side is identical and the sky skyline on the right-hand side is completely different. It's all modern buildings on the other side of the street there now. Uh, Dylan says, a good friend of mine, David Rosen, actually lobbied to have a plaque that's now there commemorating the gig. How much of a Beatles fan are you yourself? Peter Jackson says, I obviously grew up with them, but the albums really meant the most to me were the red and blue albums for a lot of people, myself included, that came out in the early 1970s. I was walking down the street past the record store and I saw those covers on display and I just had to have them. They were the first Beatles albums I actually held in my hands. Me too, the red album and the white album, because my parents never had any big Beatles records. Then I started buying all the albums and any bootlegs I can get my hands on, including the Get Back sessions. I always found them interm interminable, but with the pictures, they're a lot better. Interminable? Uh, Dylan says, finally, apart from being proud of these films and apart from the fact that you're – that you that, – Finally, apart from being proud of these films and apart from the fact that you hope that they're successful, what are your ambitions for the Beatles get back in terms of legacy? Peter Jackson says, well, I don't know how they can, uh, well, I don't know how they can't be become a pretty definitive portrait of the Beatles at work. There isn't any other footage of the Beatles at work. It's true. It's the only, uh, except for uh, Lady Madonna during the recording of the white album in 1968 that's beatles footage in the studio that's like it um it's the only real footage of the beatles during their creative process you're seeing the beatles in a more intimate way than you ever thought you would in your lifetime i think it's a slightly magical thing i agree and the beatles get back comes out on disney plus from uh november 25th through november 27th november 25th being my birthday so it is literally a birthday present to me. Happy birthday to me. Or -na 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 -na. today it's your birthday. -na 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 -na. It's my birthday too. Yeah. -na 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 -na. Sorry. I'm starting to feel that that Beatles itch. Wow, we did two hours and ten minutes, man. This is probably I think it's the longest show I've done out here, uh, out in the desert. If you enjoyed this show, uh, uninterrupted, uh, apart from whatever ad I put up. Um, please consider 
joining the Patreon, the cause to keep this content going. Please subscribe, subscribe to the channel, leave a comment, leave a like. Um, you know, if you, if you want to buy a coffee, you can do that. And like I said, if you want to join the Patreon, there's, there is, if you're a Misfits Beatles, sorry, Misfits Sam Hain Danzig fan, there's some cool stuff up there as well that is not available on YouTube. Uh, and no matter what, thank you so much for just watching. Like I said, I'm going to try and get down here to the, to the porch, the front, front of the yard to do some more of these broadcasts. It's very, very hard to do that here. And I promise that um, come friggin' come August, when I'm back in the full swing of things in New York, I will be streaming with a vengeance uh, until I find uh, employment because I need a job unless my YouTube channel takes off before then and I can continue to try and do this full time. So with that, I'm going to bid you adieu. Thank you so much. As we say on the channel, peace and hair grease. If you prefer to watch this stuff uh, in podcast form, it's available on Spotify and all other major pla uh, podcasting platform platforms out there. It's late. I'm tired. Peace and hair grease.